some of the things we've talked about up to now. The cycle of sin begins in periods of peace. When things are going well in your life, when you have money in the bank account, when your marriage is going great, your children are behaving, they're getting straight A's, um, or they're self-supporting in this world and you no longer have to help them, you know, with $10 for gas here and there. You know, when everything's going well, when church is going well, and, and the church is doing all kinds of awesome stuff, when things are going well, that is when we have to be very, very careful. Because that's when the devil is going to try to wipe that smile off your face and steal the joy that's in your heart. So we have to understand this as Christians. Just because things are going well, that doesn't mean it's going to stay that way. We have to continually praise the Lord, worship him, keep our guard up, pray for his protection, pray that we're in the center of his will. And we have to continue to be mindful of the way the devil works he is a, a roaring lion, a roaring lion is what Peter says, and he's looking for a time and an opportunity to devour us. And the best time to devour us is when we lower our guard and act like nothing's going to touch me now. In those times of peace, it's also when we begin to forsake the Lord, when we begin to skip church and we begin to put our focus elsewhere because Everything's going so well. God's not going to mind if I skip church for a few weeks to go and enjoy the summer. You know, that's why he blessed me with my boat. That's why he blessed me with, with my golf clubs and, and whatever it else that I have and I enjoy. Maybe it's a motorcycle. I don't know. But because God has blessed me with those things, he certainly won't mind if I skip a few weeks in order to enjoy that which he has given me and blessed me with. And that's when the scriptures say in the cycle of sin over and over and over that in that time of peace, the people of God forsake him and they start to worship other idols, other gods. A god or an idol is anything that we bow down to and give a certain amount of allegiance to or a certain amount of respect to or we give it a portion of our hearts. The best way to, to understand what your idols may be is to go through the registry of your bank account, of your checkbook. And, and you can see, okay, I gave $100 to um, the restaurant. I gave $150 to Cubs baseball. I gave $150 to the Bears football. I gave, you know, 300000 to my camper. Um, but you can tell by your registry where your heart is. And if those things outweigh your responsibility and tithing to the Lord, then you can see there's a major disconnect here. If the Lord is really number one in your life, he will be premium even in your bank account. That's what I'm saying. He'll be premium on your family schedule, the one that you keep on the refrigerator. You know, the sporting events and church services and, and, and meetings that you have to go to. On that schedule, you can tell where your heart really is. Look at all the pictures you have on your refrigerator. They're pictures of all of your kids and your grandkids, but do you have any pictures of Jesus on there? Do you have any Bible verses on there? Do you ever have Bible verses on your refrigerator that say something about gluttony? I'm just meddling now. But the fact is that during the time of peace in our life, when things are going well, we lower our guard and we start to focus about ourselves. We put all the attention. I deserve this. I enjoy this. I'm going to bless myself. I'm going to, to do something fun that I enjoy. 
And then we take our focus off of God and put it upon ourselves, which is, by the way, another form of idolatry. But we don't understand that when we take our focus off of God and put it on ourselves, that this is idolatry and this provokes the Lord to anger. He just blessed us. He just got us out of the pits and he established us on a high rock and he is having fellowship with us. And then in that moment of of blessing, instead of worshiping him, we're going to go and worship ourselves. That angers the Lord. It provokes him to anger. He wants our worship. He wants our attention. And so when we forsake the Lord and we go after these other gods, the only way he knows how to get our attention is by taking our blessings away from us and causing us to fall on our faces again. Because we've taken him for granted, we've taken his blessings for granted. So he usurps those things from us, encouraging us to let those other gods save us in our time of distress. And and in the provoking of his anger, he hands us over to the enemy with the expectation that once we see the enemy for who he really is, that we'll come back to the Lord. And so he disciplines us by letting us have the very thing that he doesn't want us to have. And so when we get into the hands of the enemy and then we start to express or start to experience true depression and true distress and oppression and manipulation and affliction and infirmity, when things are starting falling apart and things start getting really ugly again, then we find ourselves in a situation where we begin to petition God and we cry out for help and we cry and we cry. And last week I talked about the differences between crying and crying with conviction in the form of confession and repentance. We have a lot of people that when things are going apart, falling apart, they don't have any problem crying because things are in despair. Things are scary and they're afraid. And so a lot of people, when they're afraid, they cry. But that doesn't mean they're ready to be saved. That doesn't mean they're ready to have their life reversed. That just means they're going through a bad period of time. And we find that even if they were to to cry to the point of confession and they say, you know what? I messed my life up. I have ruined everything. What a stupid person I am. Even confession does not provoke the hand of God to deliver you. But it's in the moment of repentance when you change the way you think about your sin and about your, your idol worship and about your afflictions, when you repent, that's when the Lord really begins to listen. I'll give you a reference here. In Exodus chapter 3, there was a guy by the name of Moses. You may have heard of him. You know, let my people go, that kind of thing. It's in the cartoon. Anyway, in, in, in uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord says this to Moses through the burning bush, which you may have heard about. And he says this, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying, crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He's going to deliver them to a period of peace. 
physically, mentally, spiritually, financially. He's going to bring them out of oppression and put them in a spirit of peace. He goes down a little bit in verse 9. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, Moses. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And Moses replied, but, Mo, but, but, but Moses said to God, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out? Crying is not, it's not the end communication. Repentance is the end communication. God knows your heart. He knows when you're just crying crocodile tears in order to get attention. He knows when you're truly confessing, confessing, and he knows when you're truly repentant. And he will respond when he knows the condition of your heart is prime for him to deliver you. And, and this brings up some interesting thoughts, at least in my head. Because, you know, in, in almost 30 years of ministry, I baptize a lot of people. Some of them, some of them, you baptize them and they get hungry for the Lord. They start digging into the scripture. They start serving the kingdom. They start telling others about Jesus. And then you have a, a lot, another group of people that when you baptize them, you never see them again. You have people who you baptize them and they, they act no different. And, and, and so it causes at least me to wonder, did they really mean it? Why did they do it? Were they just checking that box off their list? Were they just wanting to get to heaven? Were they just wanting to make their parents and their grandparents happy? Or did, were they really in love with Jesus and wanted to have fellowship with him? Because what this passage communicates to me is, is that when their hearts are really, really desperate for God, that's when they find him. Not in this half-hearted search, but in this true devotion for God, that's when they find the real love that God has to give. That's when they truly, compassionately find salvation for their souls and they embrace it because they know what a wretch they were and how holy God is. And now they've been reconciled and they now are holy. In so many people, there's something missing there. There's something missing. How do we know? Because it says right here in verse 17 that when he would raise up a deliverer to them, or when he would give them a deliverer, a deliverer with somebody who would get them out of the oppression and out of their despair and bring them to that land of peace. When that deliverer would be given by God, sent by God to bring them out, what would their attitude be? And in verse 17 it says, Yet they would not listen to their judge. Judge can be interchanged with deliverer, with their redeemer, or with their salvation. They would not listen to their judges. Now, this, this prompts me to, to go to James uh, to just highlight something that he has to say in chapter 1 of his book. If I can find it quickly, if I can, I'll just try to half-heartedly quote it. In James 1, he says this, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not for forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. So these are people, basically, who who somewhat know God and know his plan and somewhat know his scriptures. They've heard these things, but they don't necessarily listen to these things. I... I'll just be honest, as a husband sometimes, I hear things that my wife says, and I immediately forget it, either because I'm watching TV or I'm doing something else, um, or because I don't really want to hear what she has to say. Um, we, we call that selective mutism, Yeah, selective mutism or selective uh, uh, hearing loss. Um, But why would we not listen to the things that God is telling us through those deliverers, through those judges? In other words, let's put it simple. When Jesus comes into your life and he says, don't do that, don't do that, why would you not listen to him? Does he not know what's best for your life? Does he not love you more than you love yourself? Does he not have a plan for your life to bless you and prosper you? Why would we not listen to him? Because he doesn't say what we want to hear. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In those last days, people will gather around them, teachers and preachers, who tell them exactly what their itching ears want to hear. And so because of that, we learn to ignore or embrace our selective hearing loss. They would not listen to their judges in in verse 17 and verse 18. 18, whenever the Lord would raise up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. But they continually had a problem being faithful to their judges. They served and they worshiped idols. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. Now, I want to highlight, I told you the cycle of sin is in the book of Judges at least six times, clearly, okay? And I want to just share some of the different nuances of these situations, these circumstances. The first one comes in in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Uh, the, The judge, the deliverer, his name is Othniel. It says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forsook the Lord their God, and they served the Baals. The anger of the Lord burned against them, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim who is the king of Aram. The Israelites were subject for eight years, but when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer. When they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer. He saved them through that deliverer. Now, this is interesting because by using the word, the Hebrew word, uh, to indicate that he raised up a deliverer, that means that he wasn't necessarily ready for the task. Maybe he had never received the calling. Maybe he had never received the anointing. Maybe he was just oblivious to the things of God. Maybe he was, you know, in church on every Sunday like every good Jew was, but he just wasn't there. So God raised him up. 
In other words, God called him and grabbed him by the nap of the neck and put his spirit upon him and said, go to my people and deliver them now. They were in oppression for eight years before they began to cry out. We don't know how long they continued to cry until that deliverer, Othniel, was ready for the task. It's even possible that he had not been born yet. In that case, it's possible that like with Jeremiah in chapter 1 verse 4, that while he was in the womb, I knew you. and Before you were born, I consecrated you, which means I appointed you to a particular task. It's possible that Othniel was commissioned in the womb. And so God had to raise him up from infancy to the place where he was ready to take the task by the horns. God raised up a deliverer for them. We don't know how long it took. But eventually, Othniel stepped in under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and delivered them from their enemy. In chapter 3, verse 12, starting with, uh, starting with verse 12, but going through the end of the chapter, we study about Ehud. Uh, once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forsook the Lord. They followed other gods. And the, and the Lord burned in anger against them. It says in verse 15, that after being oppressed for 18 years, they cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. Now, this is different to me. This kind of impl- in, uh, indicates to me that the deliverer's already been raised up, already been trained, already anointed, already called, and has accepted the calling, but is looking for an assignment. And so God took this man, again, by the nap of the neck, and said, I got an assignment for you. You're going here, and you're going to deliver my people from the Moabites. And Ehud, who was a left-handed man, this is a great story, by the way, if you didn't know it. Love this. This is my favorite Old Testament story, by the way, just because I'm a guy. King Eglon was a very, very round king, very big boy. And in the scripture, I won't go into this very much. I just got to tell you this. He was in the cooling room. There's a room on his palace where the air flowed through that room. Now, why in the palace would you need to have at least one room where the air flowed abundantly? Would that not be the restroom? That's exactly what it is. The cooling room. All right, that's where the air was. So he was in the cooling room taking care of his business, and this left-handed deliverer by the name of Ehud comes in. They specify that because every man was right-handed. So a right-handed man is going to attach the dagger to his left leg. And so when he came in to be inspected by the security guards, they checked his left leg, not his right leg. So when he went in to see the king, he grabbed it off of his right leg and had it in his hand. And he stepped into the cooling room to see the king, Eglon. And he stuck the dagger in his belly. And the scriptures say that the fat encapsulated it. It it swallowed it in. So there was no sign of any uh, foul play. But the scriptures also say that when he fell on the ground, that there was an aroma. And the security guards standing outside were too embarrassed to go in and see their king in this situation. So they waited and they waited till the aroma died. And then finally, when they went into the cooling room, they saw their king laying on the ground dead, but Ehud was long gone. God uses those interesting little details to accomplish his purposes, and every one of those details are perfect. Anyway, 
The point is that God handed them. He gave them a deliverer in the form of Ehud. In chapter 4, we learn about Deborah. Deborah was already in ministry. She was already in leadership of the people. But she had not been commissioned for this particular task. So what that implies is it's possible that the deliverer that this world or this region needs today is here in this church right now at this moment, serving in some capacity, but has not yet confirmed the anointing that's upon them to go and to deliver God's children. So either God is waiting for the cries of the people to reach a certain velocity, or he's waiting for the disparity of their heart to reach a certain intensity, or he's waiting simply for that person to listen to what God is saying to them and to raise up and say, I will go, send me, I'll do whatever you ask. I don't know about you, but I I hear cries of help every time I turn on the TV. Every time I see the news from El Paso or Dayton or even in Rock Island, people are crying for help. They're crying for a deliverer, and it's possible that the deliverer may be sitting in these seats right now doing nothing. That's Deborah. In chapter 6, Gideon says this, or the judges say this about Gideon. Again, the Israelites did evil. For seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to help for the Lord in verse 6. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, they, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. He sent them a prophet first to proclaim to them, this is why you got yourselves into trouble. But they didn't listen to him, it says in verse 10. So the angel of the Lord went and sat down under an oak tree in, in Oprah, not Oprah Winfrey, but Oprah Israel, and, and that belonged to Joash, and there was his son Gideon working in the, thresh, the threshing floors. The angel of the Lord said, uh, if the Lord, or Gideon said to the angel, because they had their little calling session, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in strength. You have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And Gideon says, how can I save Israel? He sent them a prophet first to say, this is what you need to do to bring, get your act together and to prepare for the Lord's deliverance. But they did not listen to the prophet. So the angel of the Lord himself had to come and to anoint a servant, Gideon, to come. And even Gideon had no faith. And he put the Lord through a series of tests to make sure that you're actually calling me to do this. Interesting. If you go to chapter 10, and this will be the last one I deal with so that you all can have some break here. If we look at Jephthah in chapter 10, verse 6, it says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. You see a pattern. Again, the people of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Again, the Christians did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Again, the church members did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is a pattern that's been going on for thousands of years. And so the Lord gave them over to their deliverer, the Philistines. They were shattered and crushed. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites. In verse 10, or verse 9 rather, 
The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. And Israel was in great distress. Then the Lord, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. This is when they confessed. I talked about this last week. And then when you get into verse 14 and 15, this is when they repented of their evilness, their sinfulness. And they said, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, God. But please rescue us. They got rid of all their foreign gods among them, and they served the Lord. And the Lord could no longer bear their misery. So he raised up Jephthah, the Gilead. Interesting stuff. The point is this. The point of all of this is this. If you're not there right now, the chances are that you've either been there or you're getting ready to go through it. A time in your life of great distress... When you're going to think it's the end of the world, you're going to think that you just can't breathe anymore, that you're going to think, does anybody really care about me? Is there really a God? Because I don't see him at work in my life. There's going to come a time when that happens. It's going to happen. And when that happens, who are you going to cry out to? Are you going to cry out to to your mommy or your daddy? Who could be well up in their 90s at that point and are like, you know what, son, I just can't do it. You're going to have to call someone else. Or are you going to call your spouse? Or are you going to call one of your children, a neighbor? You know, I think I told you when I was working in, in addiction counseling and we were going over the 12 steps with people, I had one guy, David Lee, who said this. He's long gone now. He's passed. But David Lee said this. When I first went to AA and they said, you need to pick a higher power for yourself, he said, I picked deputy dog. And I said to him, how'd that work for you? And he says, well, I can just tell you that I'm a Christian now for a reason. Deputy dog didn't save him. You know what I'm saying? Be very careful and and calculated who you pick to be your redeemer. Make sure first that he has the ability. And secondly, make sure that he cares enough about you to do whatever it takes to deliver you from the hands of the enemy. And in all of my studies and all of my experience and all of my ministry and everything I've ever done and read, I can tell you this with certainty. There's only one person in this world who has the ability and the love motivation to deliver you from evil. And that is Jesus himself, the son of the living God. He comes among us. He walks among us. He works in the lives of various people. And he wants to bring your redemption. He wants to see your salvation. He wants to see your heart change. Why? Because he has a father in heaven who loves you even more and wants you to be in in fellowship with him. He wants you in fellowship with him. That's the only thing God cares about is do you love him? Do you want him? Do you want to be in relationship with him? Jesus died on the cross so that you can make that a reality. He is the redeemer that God has raised up, that God has given you, that he has sent to you, that he has called and anointed for you. And why do we keep ignoring him? He keeps calling us by name. Come, I want to have fellowship with you. And like, oh no, I got the good out of the boat. Nope, we got tickets to the casino. Nope, going to the cards game. Can't do it tonight, Lord. Maybe next week. Jesus wants to have relationship with you. He is God. 
God wants to have relationship with you. He wants to put his person of the Holy Spirit inside of you so that he can lead, guide, direct you, convict, bless, love, forgive, all these things. He wants to have relationship with you. Why do we keep ignoring him? Today might be the last chance you ever get to have Jesus come in the person of himself and have relationship with you. Today might be the last day. It might be your last opportunity. These are the games that we play with God. I've already been baptized. I already believe in him. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian, pastor. Didn't you know that? Yeah, like the, like the story says, you, don't, you also don't have to have a parachute to jump out of an airplane. But it certainly helps. <laughs> certainly helps. I can't tell you enough how much God loves you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit that will convict you right now of how deeply he loves you. I can't do that. I can try to manipulate you, but that's not effective. I ask the Holy Spirit to come into your life right now and reveal to you the condition of your heart and the relationship that you have with him. I pray the Holy Spirit will reveal that to you right now. And I pray that in you, when you start to see what he sees and hear what he hears and feel what he feels, my prayer is is that you will open up your eyes and see, open up your heart and feel, and that you will receive him, that you will invite him to have fellowship with you, and that you will repent as long, um, let me say this differently. I, want, I don't necessarily want you to weep. That's what I want to say first. I don't necessarily want you to cry, but I do want you to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit that leads you to confession And from that confession, repentance. That's what I want to see happen in all of you. That's what God has sent me here to tell you for the last four years plus to tell you that one simple message. Now is the time of your salvation. Turn to him. I don't care when you were baptized. I don't care how long you've been a church member. I don't care how long you think you've been walking with the Lord. Now is the day to get right with him and to let him fix things. Because there's a dying world around us and the cries for help are intense. As the scriptures say, Jesus said, the fields are ripe for harvest, but the harvesters are few. Because they're too busy living their own life. Anyway, I invite you to come up here. I would love to pray with you. We have elders that would love to pray with you. We want to give you peace that comes from God. We want to see that that joy come back to your life. And so I pray that you will respond to what the Holy Spirit's calling you to do today. Let's pray. Holy Father, we pray a prayer of humility. We are sorry that we haven't always loved you with our whole heart, that we have not always listened to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. We have not always listened to your commission. We have not obeyed the things you've called us to obey. Father, we have not been the people you've called us to be. We pray that with the help of the Holy Spirit, that you will convict us of our sin and our shortcomings. We pray that with the help of the Holy Spirit, that you will enable us to confess where we've messed up, where we've gone wrong. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we pray that you will help us to repent and to change our minds, change our hearts of everything we just heard about today. We want to be in a healthy relationship with you. 
not for the blessings, just for the joy of saying that my God loves me and I love him. Please, Father, move in this place of worship today with power, with humility, with love, and with grace. We call on you today in Jesus' name. Amen.